Welcome to Invisible Arts with Richard Gibbs. Brought to you by Armory of Harmony. Ever see a movie called The Red Violin? This is my true story. The story of the amazing Fire Engine Red flying piano. Once upon a time, I was the musical director for the Tracy Ullman Show on Fox. It was a sketch variety show with Tracy exhibiting her prodigious talents as an impersonator of the highest order. Parliament Funkadelic's George Clinton wrote the theme that you're listening to right now. Every week, we had a different guest star on the show. Once we had Steven Spielberg... He was actually kind of nervous. He wasn't used to being in front of the camera. I was to teach him how to sing It's a Small World. He actually didn't know the lyrics. He screwed it up. After all the coaching and everything else, he ended up singing It's a World of Laughter, a World of Beers. With my own voice, I, I put in the T in beer, so it became tears. Another week we had Tim Curry on the show, he of Rocky Horror Picture Show fame. He was to play a down-on-his-luck fading rock star. I was tasked with the job of finding a piano that would befit the living room of that character. I started calling around the rental companies in town, see if anybody had like a Liberace-styled mirrored piano or something crazy. And one rental company said, you know, we have this... Fire Engine Red Yamaha C7 Grand Piano. It's unplayable. Strings are broken. It's beat to hell, but it's Fire Engine Red. And I said, we'll take it. That's perfect. The skit called for Tim to accompany himself on the piano while singing Lonely at the Top by Randy Newman. I've been around the world the problem was Tim didn't really play piano, so we rented another piano for the piano player in our house band to play just off camera while Tim faked it on camera and while I was conducting the orchestra playing the rest of the parts. This particular fire engine red piano had started out life as a white piano with a fine polished white lacquer coat. At one point, it had been Diana Ross's touring piano. Diana Ross had had her entire set painted red, including this piano. It just so happened that right at that time, I was in the market to buy a piano. Yamaha C7 has always been kind of the studio standard. And I couldn't really afford a, certainly couldn't afford a new one. And used ones were generally going in the range of thirteen dollars to $15,000, which was still a little steep to me. But I knew about this fire engine red piano that was thrashed. I didn't really care what it looked like. It was just going to be ensconced in my little basement studio in the valley. So I called up the, uh, the rental company and said, hey, do you want to sell that piano? You know, that fire engine red C7? They said, sure. It's, it's on 
unplayable. It's got broken strings. It's rusted inside. And we bargained back and forth, and I ended up getting it for, I think it was 4750 bucks. So, good deal. And I had my buddy, Jim Wilson, who's this piano tech to the stars. I mean, he's set up pianos for Elton John and Paul McCartney. One of those guys would fly him to London to help pick out a piano. This guy's the man. And he uh, restrung the piano for me and revoiced it, fixed all the hammers, put new, refelted it, and most importantly, added MIDI to the piano. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it means that that piano could be used to control synthesizers, which I would do when scoring films. So the piano was housed in my little studio that was in a basement room of our house in the valley. I had done the best I could to soundproof the studio, but it really didn't quite work because it, the studio was right underneath our kitchen. And at the time we had little kids, we had slate floors on the kitchen, and any the kids would be up there, and any time they wanted to play marbles or something, they always went to that slate floor, and I can just hear those marbles just sound like bowling balls going over that floor. So I nicknamed the studio Under the Bowling Alley. I scored a lot of movies on that piano. Some of them I actually played the piano and recorded it in that studio, and other times I just used it to hammer out the themes and then I would go record it with an orchestra elsewhere. Movies like um, uh, Once Upon a Crime, Bingo, Say Anything, lots of fun stuff. The Simpsons. I scored uh, the first season of The Simpsons using that piano as my kind of go-to um, writing instrument. Basically what I'm saying is I fell in love with that piano. Have you ever gone to a pound to rescue a dog? You know, and you look, if you go, if you walk down, if you've never done it, by the way, I highly recommend you do it once, at least once. You walk down that long aisle and there's these cages of dogs on either side of you barking and yipping. You see dogs that were abandoned, they're sad and lonely. Your heart goes out to them and you feel like, I'll bet if I take that dog home, take him to the vet, feed him well, give him a lot of love, he's going to come to life. Well, that's what that piano was. It was like that. It was that beat-up dog in the pound. And we, we had a lot of fun together, made a lot of music together. That piano moved with my family to Malibu. We went through a, a couple of houses that we were renting, and one of the houses that we rented I had installed the studio in a room above a four-car garage on the property. The only access to the studio was a very narrow staircase. And the only way to get equipment in and out of there was to crane it through a picture window on the side. So when we were moving, installing everything in there, including at the time a, you know, a big Trident recording console and a Studer tape machine, and this fire engine red piano. Uh, we had everything craned in, but the fire engine red piano, I called up the original company that I'd bought it from because I knew they were also expert piano movers. I said, would you guys handle this? They said, sure. So when it was being craned in, I, I have this memory of this guy who looked like the guy that worked for the, the piano company. He looked like Hulk Hogan. So just picture Hulk Hogan 
as his piano is being lifted up off the ground and he was riding the the crane who was like holding on to the rope and going up with the piano is being swung in through this window that my brother-in-law and I had removed so he could get the piano in. We finally got the money together to buy a house in Malibu and we bought a house just a mile away from that one overlooking the ocean and we had a the house had a funky guest house in the backyard that I knew eventually I would rebuild but for now it would work. So it was time to move house. And this time I decided to use the moving company to also move the piano. And I had talked to them about it. And they said, are you guys experienced moving pianos? They said, oh, yeah, sure. We do this all the time. No problem. Okay, cool. The fateful day comes and we're all, all packed up. Everything's in the moving van and we're waiting for the piano to get craned out. Now, the moving company had wrapped the piano in just standard moving blankets that were adhered to each other just with regular old packing tape. The crane operator put the sling underneath the piano and went outside and proceeded to pull the piano very slowly outside of the open picture window. We're watching from down below as the piano came out and it started rocking ever so slightly back and forth. Suddenly the piano slipped the bounds of the packing blankets and the sling turned perpendicular to the ground and went crashing straight down, ivories first. Now, the sound of a piano hitting the ground, you would imagine sounds like something out of a Wile E. Coyote Roadrunner cartoon. I'm sure that's what everybody hears right now when I describe this incident. But that's not what we heard at all. It was the sound you hear in the middle of the night that wakes you up and you don't know what the hell that was. It was that sound. Just a subsonic thump. The whole ground shook. We were a good 20 feet away and the ground shook and it was just this low... I had killed my piano my faithful companion for all of those scores and all those years was now sticking in the ground like a giant red tombstone. Everybody in the driveway slowly turned to look at me to see what my reaction was going to be. They went, oh, oh, oh. No, nobody could believe what they had just seen. There were some bushes underneath that window and it completely obliterated the bushes and the ground was a little soft and wet and it just stuck in the ground at a very unnatural angle. Everybody's looking at me and I just slowly kind of hold my hands up, look down and walk away, face away from everybody else. All I'm thinking is, did I pay my insurance? Am I covered? And I just wasn't sure. The movers, I remember these guys, all three of them, one by one, popped their head out of that picture window. And they're all looking down at the piano, just 14 feet below them. And I hear one of them goes, Oh, I never saw that happen before. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. They come rushing down to the piano to try to attend to it. 
and they're, it's fine. It's going to be okay. And it was, no, it's not going to be okay. Was, no, we'll, we'll put it up right. And I said, you do not touch this. Treat this like a football player who's been knocked out by a blindside tackle. You do not move him. Do not touch this piano. So I called up Jim while I'm standing next to the piano, my piano technician buddy. And I said, Jim, you're not going to believe what just happened to the red piano. He goes, okay. And I tell him, he's kind of laughing. And, and I said, I think it might be okay. The outer frame of the piano looks okay. The keyboard has been jammed back up inside the piano by a good five or six inches. And the fall board that falls over the keyboard is shattered. The lid is completely tweaked. And the pedals are kind of sideways. But I think the wooden case is intact. And Jim, I think the soundboard's okay. I don't, you know, it doesn't look like it's been moved or cracked or anything. And Jim says, don't look at the soundboard. Look at the harp. Go around the other side of the piano. So go around. And the harp is the metal frame inside the piano that holds all the strings. It's a big metal, big hunk of metal, big hunk of steel. He says, look at that. Do you see any cracks in that? And I look at it as I'm talking to him. I said, well, there's one little thing, but I think it's a defect in the manufacturing. There's, there's a little line about an inch long. He said, great. Take out a pencil right now and put an X on either side of that line. I said, okay. So as I'm doing, I said, why am I doing this? He said, if you see that crack move beyond those X's at all, I want you to run as fast as you can. Run away from that piano. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He said, a grand piano has as much as 30 tons of pressure in there, like 30 tons of dynamite from all the strings that are holding all that tension there. It will literally implode and explode. And while I'm standing here looking at my piano, my beloved piano, Jim described other incidents where this kind of thing had happened. He told me the story of the Sydney Opera House. On the afternoon before their grand opening concert, stagehands had brought out a nine-foot concert grand. Now, they didn't realize that the stage, like all concert halls, was canted ever so slightly towards the audience for sight lines and sound. They walked back into the wings without blocking the wheels of the piano. As they got into the wings, they heard the sound and that was the sound of the pedals snapping off. They turned around and watched that nine-foot grand tip over the lip of the stage, down 20 feet onto the hard floor of the orchestra pit. That Steinway imploded like the house at the end of Poltergeist, then exploded and destroyed several rows of seats, and they said the biggest piece they found of that piano was a foot and a half long. So Jim was describing this to me. I said, oh, my Lord. So I'm backing away from the piano. I said, just keep an eye on that. If you see that move. Anyway, it never did move. It seemed to be fine or at least salvageable. Insurance paid for Jim to completely rebuild the piano. But it seemed only right to give it a new coat, a new color. It had started out its life as gloss white, then fire engine red. And now it was reborn a beautiful satin black. It took a good eight or nine months to rebuild the piano and refinish it. So in the meantime, I bought a new piano. 
a Yamaha C6. It was gorgeous. Jim delivered my original C7, the formerly fire engine red piano, and it played great and everything, but I just never trusted that piano again. It just made me nervous. I always I felt like driving a car that's been a near total. You feel like at any moment the wheels are going to fall off. I just felt like that piano was going to explode if I ever hit a chord wrong or played it too hard. Of course, the piano was actually fine. That was just all in my head. For an all-too-brief moment, my 900-pound piano felt the unfettered joy of weightlessness. Red had three lives. He was brought back from certain death twice. I've often fantasized about someday retiring in a small town with good warm surf where nobody knows my past. My career would be my private pride. I think I have given Red that gift. He sits now in a retired dentist's living room, clad in satin black, and allows Beethoven or Cherny to escape from his strings. But only he knows that he cavorted with Diana, that his voice has been heard by millions in movies and on TV. Only he knows that he once flew. How many pianos have survived to tell that tale? Invisible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in Malibu, California. I'm Tracy Ullman, and I know Richard Gibbs, and he's a BGB, a bloody good bloke. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.